meditation, 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 depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. Can't think of anything. This is meditation in the city. The Shambhala New York podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is Becoming a Buddhist. In this episode, we discuss the process of becoming a Buddhist and the refuge vow, the formal commitment to following the Buddhist path. Today we are joined by Eric Spiegel. Eric has been a student and teacher in the Shambhala tradition since his teens. His teachings are filled with warmth, humor, and precision. Here's Eric to take away the discussion. So refuge is the traditional vow of entering, formally entering the Buddhist path. So people, like many people, read Buddhist teachings, uh, practice meditation. Many people today consider themselves Buddhists, uh, kind of, or friends of the Buddha, sort of. I like Buddha. (laughs) <laughs> and um, <clears throat> and that's actually great. There's no that's sort of a good situation all around uh, because it means basically that you're trying to figure something out and you're trying to uh, align yourself with something that has a sense of decency and morality. And also, uh, generally speaking, it means that you're trying to figure out how to. Uh, live your life, how to be uh, the person that you um, have some idea that you could actually be in terms of um, expressing your dignity without all of your neurosis contained within it. And um, (laughs) which so often we think we can do and then it doesn't work out. (laughs) Hi, Mom. What? (laughs) So, um, according to the way that the journey goes or the way that the path is formally taught, all of that's completely okay and there is no need to ever take refuge vow except that refuge vow is the sense of actually making it formal. So in order to really deepen and really connect, uh, if you get to a point, whether it's next month or 10 years or never, but if you get to a point where you actually want to really um, connect to that path, to the path of the teachings of the Buddha, the path of what the teachings of the Buddha are called the Dharma, so I always, I mean, know a lot of people know these words, but a lot of people who are newer may not know them. So the Dharma means the teaching, it means the teachings of the Buddha, but it also means the teachings that have been expressed by all the students throughout the last 2,600 years who have practiced and studied the teachings of the Buddha. So... Uh, all of that is called the Dharma, and the Dharma just means, for the 
for this purpose, it just means the way. Sometimes it could mean um, uh, all of the ways. It could mean all phenomena, it could mean like everything is the Dharma. But generally, when we speak about it, we're really just talking about the Buddhist teachings. So <clears throat> it's sort of like if you want to be an artist and you just kind of pick up a paintbrush and you sometimes paint on your own uh, or you dance on your own and then you actually decide you want to really learn then you go to a teacher and you say can I have can you teach me um, dance or can you teach me how to paint or about color or about form and light, and then um, you've made some kind of like real gesture of, uh, okay, I'm going to engage in this. And in a certain way, the process or the act of taking refuge is that has that same kind of sense that you're extending out. And from uh, this point of view, it's really it's a karmic gesture. It's that you're saying that you're kind of turning away from the you're actually shifting f from, you're setting something in motion that shifts from kind of the mundane moment-to-moment uh, -moment discursiveness to actually planting a strong seed that says this is, um, this is, the, this is what I want to generate. This is the garden I want to grow. So what does it mean anyway? Uh, especially in these days, it's like um, people, we all come, you know, if, you, if we had been born in Tibet or Japan, we would have been raised in a Buddhist world, you know, if we were, particularly if we were born in a different time in Japan or Tibet. And we would have been born, raised in a Buddhist world, probably in a Buddhist family, probably surrounded by Buddhist teachings and Buddhist air. And yet... Um, throughout all traditions, there's a point where individually people are uh, required to actually decide on their own that they want to actually formally make that uh, gesture of connection, that karmic personal connection. And so they go to a teacher and they request to uh, receive or take the refuge vow so the refuge vow is really simple. It's like the simplest, the, the actual vow is three. It's nine words, most of which are the same. I may have miscalculated there, but it's pretty, pretty close, pretty close. It's three word, three lines. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. So the Buddha, in this case, represents the example that a person could actually wake up, that you could actually, like, um, transcend. It's not the same as escape, but you could transcend sort of the... A powerful grip of your conflictive emotions. 
So conflictive, that's an important word. So the word in, that's usually used in, is a Sanskrit word called klesha. So klesha means conflicted emotions, and cl- conflictive emotions means... Uh, so emotions by themselves are is actually kind of neutral. There are some emotions which are really, really positive, such as uh, joy and love, and uh, also sadness, so sort of feeling empathy and uh, and compassion and generosity. You could say uh, not the act of generosity, but the uh, move, the internal movement that leads one to the act of generosity is an emo- is sort of emotive. So all of these are different kinds of energy, you know. Um, but then sometimes uh, you may have had the experience of getting really, really pissed off uh, or being completely uh, drowning in obsession, which we sometimes called love, but that's not really what it is. <laughs> and, um, which, you know, which really has this, uh, it, has, it starts from the same place as uh, joy and love, but then it, also, then it gets all wrapped up with attachment and need. Um, and also, uh, so other confl- conflictive emotions would be like a, a pride, you know, not pride in the sense that you've done something that you should be proud of, which is great, but pride in the f- sense that you <clears throat> think you should be recognized for it. <laughs> and, uh, and in your own mind, you're walking around wearing a crown. And uh, and <clears throat> and uh, jealousy. So these are the these are kind of the root. You could say the root clashes. And another one is ignorance. So there's ignorance. Also, is like something that has kind of a benign aspect. That it could be sort of spaciousness and accommodation. Um, and then also it can be like just. Mm, Avoidance, like uh, can't deal with the hard, can't deal with the realities. Uh, so we just kind of we get we just smoke dope, or maybe some people don't have to do that. They can. It's all it's innate. So <laughs> and um, and so the thing is that all of us are controlled to one degree or another by all of these different waves of emotions and these different kind of uh, waves of energy that sometimes we can't escape and that they uh, cause great suffering for ourselves and others. Uh, Great pride. And so pride, so like nationalistic pride is really wonderful. You know that people people have culture. People come from a culture and that culture has deep value and deep meaning. And so we're not all here becoming Tibetan because we're in... Shambhala. I'm in Shambhala, so therefore, now I speak Tibetan, and um, <clears throat> and my family, you know, just as an example, is you know from Eastern Europe and uh, um, Jewish immigrants in early uh, turn of the 20th century, and 
and grew up on the Lower East Side. My grandparents landed there. My parents grew up on the Lower East Side. I grew up on the Lower East Side. So there's a sense of kind of real rootedness and real uh, appreciation of like that people carried something with them and transmitted values to uh, the to generations and created an environment that reflected something of meaning. <clears throat> so that's great, and then it, and then it can twist and it can become uh, uh, like ardent nationalism, which actually has the quality of exclusion and of not just appreciation of one's own uh, heritage, but um, unappreciation of other people's heritages. So uh, from that point of view, one note is, you know, when, when someone becomes a Buddhist, it's like, well, you very much, you bring the whole package is there, you're who you are. So you, your heritage is very much part of the being that's becoming, that's entering this path, that's walking on this journey. And so you don't lose it. Maybe you lose. Maybe the way you relate to it, it has already been shifting. Uh, so, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> but I think some part of it is still very much present, and that varies person to person, whether you're Jewish or Muslim or uh, Christian, and or anything else. So that uh, all of us in this world are very much blends, you could say. So the first thing really is that the Buddha is this uh, being who um, transcended the grip of his kleshas, of his conflictive emotions, and actually uh, was able to settle his mind and through that process open his heart. <clears throat> and develop a quality of insight. And so insight's a really important word because insight means um, seeing deeply, that you actually see the, see what, that you actually discover, recognize, and come to know one's own nature. And also, you could say the nature of the world, the nature of the world you live in, so that you come to know the energies and rather than being trapped by those energies, that you uh, find that you actually can um, work with them, that they are that they are fundamentally workable. Um, <clears throat> I think a lot of times we look into our we look at our world and we think that. Uh, the energy of our small world is workable to some degree, but then we look at the larger world, it doesn't seem very workable. And so I think that's a matter of really, uh, you could say, of accomplishment in a certain way that people who, some people can handle just their world and other people, as their insight and understanding and compassion grow, that they can actually handle much bigger universes of um, the conflictive energies of all beings, right? All beings who are uh, <clears throat> struggling, trying to figure out how to be, how to uh, live their life, and how to be um, have something of meaning occur. 
So all of this comes back to the Buddha. All of it comes back to the Buddha, that the Buddha did this thing. He had this kind of very expansive life. He was a prince. He was royalty. He had everything. And then he realized that he had, that um, people around him were suffering, and he had never experienced suffering himself. He'd been totally um, pampered and in his life was completely enriched. And the difference of what he saw in the world was so jarring that he felt he had to actually explore that and see what it was and see how it was that people could, how it was that he could understand directly what it means to be alive, what it means to be this beautiful uh, royal prince with all of these um, riches and um, education and the arts and then also the fact that he was inevitably going to age and get sick and all of that would crumble and um, eventually disappear or dis dis dissolve. So he went from that royalty, he went on kind of the opposite journey. He went on a journey of asceticism and great um, uh, sort of self, um, is the word abnegation? I'm not sure if that's a word, but um, um, self-denial and of uh, hardship and of uh, eating and drinking and sleeping very little and being exposed to the elements. And he attained great power. He, the word in uh, the word is in Sanskrit is city. He, he attained uh, accomplishment. So he actually attained accomplishment over his body and over his mind, and he was able to do a tremendous amount. But he also still felt that he hadn't, following various teachers, he hadn't actually. Ex he knew that there was something, uh, some point that he had not explored. And at some point he left his teachers and he left his, um, the people he'd been studying with and he went and he said, I'm going to sit down and actually look inward and I'm not going to move until I actually um, have my own direct experience of uh, mind and reality and that I actually see clearly what is. And so he was obviously a really extraordinary person that he would even know that there was something there behind, like that uh, most of us don't know there's a curtain, let alone that there's something behind the curtain. So <laughs> we, <laughs> it's kind of like the Truman Show, you know, we just think it's that's the environment and so <laughs> and um and so, um, so he already, obviously from birth, he was already a very extraordinary person. And, um, and so then he did that and he sat. And all of, in the same way that we do and we sit our stupid 25 minutes, you know, that all of our mind rises up. Either we get so distracted with our fantasies or our fears or our sleepiness, right? <laughs> or our irritations. <laughs> and 
And so all of these things, of course, arose in his mind, you know, in full force because he was so completely intent that they arose completely. So all of his anger arose and all of his desire arose. And then also all of his sense of emptiness and a sense of unworthiness arose. And he sat, he sat, he kept his mind steady through all of that. So there's like two different things going on. When we practice meditation, there's all of the things that are arising in our mind. And you could say then there's also mind itself. And so when we're beginning to practice meditation and when we're trying to figure out what is this, what are we doing here, that's really what we're doing is we're uh, trying to discern between the mind and the activity of mind. And we're trying to discover what's actually our awareness or our wisdom mind rather than just kind of the activity of mind, which is usually... So same kind of thing when I said usually we don't even know there's a curtain there. It's like usually we think that that activity of mind is our mind, right? That that's what reality is, is that things are irritating or they're pleasurable and they're, they come and they go and they're hot or cold and, you know, I'm in love or I'm out of love and I'm so lonely and blah, 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 I have to go to bed now. And so... Um, did I just describe your life? <laughs> or was that my life? And so, <laughs> and so, um, so that's just actually thought, which is like kind of stunning, and that that's just like this level of thought that just keeps going on, and we keep thinking that that's the reality, and so. <clears throat> In the story of the Buddha, the Buddha actually sat down. That's really the example. When we sit, that's the example, is that he sat down. He sat down. He'd been, ex for six years, exposing, exposed to the elements and exposed to great hardship and great austerity. And at that point, he uh, begged some food from a woman on the edge of a village, and she gave him... Uh, kind of a, a yogurt and rice mix, so some richness and some sweetness and some protein. And, uh, and then he gathered, instead of just like sitting down under the heat of the sun on the hard surface of the ground, he gathered some grass and made a what we would consider an outrageously hard seat, but for him it was a relatively soft seat. <laughs> so, and he and he chose a spot under the shade of a tree, so kind of protected. And then he went on his inner journey, and he just sat until he saw reality, saw his, saw nature of the inner and outer nature directly. You could say. And then when he got up, he didn't actually think that there would be anything that he could say about it, and he didn't have any intention to teach. And then he came upon some people who he had been studying with, some students who he had been studying with, and they thought that he, well, like in the ascetic realm, uh, some yogis, and they thought that he had fallen off the wagon, that he had kind of he'd eaten real food and 
taken a nap or something. So, so they thought he had really like uh, they um, were about to sort of shout um, derogative epithets at him, and and uh, as he approached, they saw his tremendous radiance and his tremendous uh, presence. And so, even though their intention was sort of habitual, in what actually happened is that they stood up. They just, in his presence, they just stood up. And they just looked, or they just felt. And so, and then they said, what have you been doing? You know, what, what's the change here? <laughs> what's going on, dude? And, um, and he actually did something interesting. He, he expressed his enlightenment. And there are, there's this, which I've never been able to quite grok, there's this, um, you could probably Google it, actually. There's the, the words he spoke supposedly at the mom- at that moment when they said, what's going on here? And uh, he expressed his enlightenment and no one could understand it. And then he saw that they couldn't, that he wasn't talking to them, that he was just talking from his own space. And then he saw them and then he spoke to them and he said something like, do you realize you have thoughts? And then he taught the teaching that's called the Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering or the truth of uh, dukkha, which means we translate it as suffering, but more accurately it means um, uh, dissatisfaction or uns- like a sense, or the sense of not being, that we have sometimes felt of not being properly seated in our world, in our skin even if you're home by yourself, that you can't quite relax, and even though, even though it's your environment and you've decorated it <laughs> and you've prepared the food and somehow it's not quite right. So that's dukkha. And then he taught that that's um, all-pervasive, that all beings experience that uh, almost continually, but that that's not actually the nature and he taught that it has an origin, which is that we are that we think that we're going to get something that we don't already have. We think we're going to somehow uh, enrich our world in some way that it already isn't enriched. That we think we're going to rearrange the furniture just one last time, and then we'll be able to relax, <laughs> or um, or buy an amulet, or something, you know. And he said, so that the origin of, of that dukkha is that sense of um, needing of, he said, grasping, of, being, of fixating on things and thinking that you need them and that they will make you happy. And then he taught, a, and then he taught that there was actually a truth of that all, dukkha could be and could, it, it's generally called the cessation of suffering is what he taught so it's that dukkha isn't the last word and then he taught the path and so then for the rest of his life he taught the path so that's called that 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 activity which happened at the 
in, in a place that still exists, which is called the Deer Park at Varanasi. He met his, these students and they said, what's going on? And he spoke first his enlightenment and th that didn't mean anything to anyone. And so then he spoke uh, words that people could use. And so <clears throat> that cycle of teaching is called the turning of the wheel of Dharma, the setting the wheel of the Dharma in motion in this world. And it has turned for centuries, for over 2,500 years. It's turned throughout India and China and Japan and Korea and the Himalayans. And then um, due to the um, um, dual, you could uh, tragedy and um, uh, benefit of the aggression of the Maoist Chinese, uh, Tibet, uh, which was kind of the main place that the Buddhist teachings really fully, 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 fully existed as a culture. And into the 20th century, uh, Tibet kind of um, crumbled and the walls of the Himalayans kind of fell open and the teaching spread all throughout the world. And so, uh, and available to people who are artists and dancers and lawyers and dentists and uh, baristas. <laughs> so, so now I completely op open it up to any kind of questions or discussion you might have. And uh, it's very meaningful to me that people come on a Tuesday night and actually practice meditation and take a few moments to actually contemplate meaning in our life. You mentioned the Four Noble Truths, and you stated one of them, two of them, I think. The I zoomed past the, the others. What are the other two? So I said to suffering, the origin of suffering, cessation of suffering, that's the okay. third, and the path is the fourth. Path. Okay. He taught the path, that's the fourth noble truth, that there's a way to get from here to there. That's what the path means, is that he taught a way. Okay. Thank you. Right behind you on your right. Can you tell us the difference um, between the way the mind operates and somebody who's like you, who have been involved with the meditation for 30 years versus some of us who have been doing this for a very short time? Yeah. Um, well, not particularly using myself as a, some great example, but just in general. <laughs> um, I think the practice of meditation is learning, as I said, uh, about the relationship between mind and thoughts. See, there's, um, if I can quickly find it in here. Uh, the Buddha overcame the tenden his tendency to always think about himself first. He was over able to overcome his kleshas, conflictive emotions, and see beyond ego he realized that there is really no self. In a sense, there is a person who rides on a bus and washes dishes, but the Buddha realized that the self we hang on to so tightly does not really exist. 
In overcoming our clashes, our discursiveness, we can begin to step out of our self-involvement and start thinking about others. So I think that's the main feature here, is that when you're not so caught up with the movement of your own mind and all the messages you're hearing of I want and I need, and I'm so lonely and I'm so in love and da 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 da, all of those things that constantly churn um, and, uh, and drive us kind of insane on some level, you know, because none of them will, following all of those messages will not fulfill you, I gotta say. So, but, so through meditation, you actually start to recognize those thoughts as thoughts and that they arise and they uh, abide for a while and then they subside and new ones come up and those have the same nature of kind of a fickleness and movement, but are no more real, real. And so then you start to actually see what's there what's present uh, beyond that super, superficial, superficiality, beyond that energetic layer of what's actually present. And when you're not as caught up in these things that are always kind of about your reference point to yourself, like I am, I need, I want, then you actually, your whole vision shifts and you are... Um, able to actually see the world and see people and what they need see how they're suffering not just hear their hear, you hear we always hear their voices and we think oh they're really irritating and so and then and then suddenly you realize oh that irritation is because they're in great dukkha they're in great suffering and so then you think well how could i be of benefit so I would say though that's the main essence of this whole path is how could I be of benefit? But to be of benefit, you have to first start here to actually be a great practitioner of compassion, wisdom and compassion. You have to just start very simply by sitting down. Um, concretely, what does the the ceremony of taking the vow entail? Because I was actually, I was looking online and like, it seems like different, I guess different lineages do yes, it different traditions. So do it what, what's it entail in terms of what one actually does if they do it here? One actually does is you repeat the words after me three times. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. You said that three times after me in a formal setting. And, but the context is that we've gone through a weekend retreat of studying and contemplating and practicing. So there's, so uh, um, when we do, you know, a lot of things, when we do like Shambhala training, if you do level one of Shambhala training, everyone is doing level one of Shambhala training. If you do level five, it means that everyone has done levels one through four. And But if you do refuge vows, some people have been practicing for four months and some people have been practicing for eight years. And some people have done retreats and some people are really, really new. And it's just a matter of that karmically people are at the point 
of motivation to do that at the same point. So it's a very, it's a different kind of program, but I think it's, you know, um, I call the program, you know, the Shambhala teachings have a particular uh, thread of uh, warriorship and how we walk the path, how we actually engage our lives as people, how, do, how we try to actually bring um, wisdom and meaning in, uh, into our life. And so um, I try to um, blend both the traditional Buddhist teachings with the Shambhala teachings. Um, and so the meaning of becoming a Shambhala person means basically that you become a decent, dignified citizen of the world. Thank Whereas you. traditionally, you know, if you be becoming a Buddhist meant you became a yogi or a monastic. Thank you. I have two-part question. The first one is, do you have any interpretation as to what the Buddha was trying to say when he first spoke? And my second question is regarding uh, some uh, teaching that I was listening to from Pema Chodron, who is a student of mm -hmm. Trungpa Rinpoche. Yes. She said that um, one of the things you can do is to move closer to your suffering. And if you could explain maybe if you, how uh, a person could do that, moving closer. Um. So the first thing is the Buddha spoke the he expressed his enlightenment. So a lot of times that's what that's a pretty common thing that we have an inspiration and then we just say the inspiration but we don't really draw a path for people to get there. So you say, "Oh, you all have to move over here and you all have to move over there and then things will be better." But you have to actually like educate people about why that might be and Otherwise, they'll just rebel against you. <laughs> and if you ask them to uproot their lives and for some great vision that you've had. So, so he, so then in, in essence, in that one sentence, he expressed the whole thing. And then the whole rest of his life was explicating it, like creating a way for people actually to get to that spot that he had expressed, mm. to get to that vision or that insight. And in terms of, I think, I don't think, out of context, I can <clears throat> really explain Pema's teachings, teaching in this case, because I'm not sure what she was teaching on and what the, but I think generally it means uh, you have to <clears throat> not run from reality, but actually be willing to be present with reality. So be present with your suffering or your fear or your irritation and hold it. And be willing to ordinarily, <coughs> when something upsets us, we go on a whole storyline about it. We go on a whole journey about why it upsets us and how upset we are. And, oh, I'm so upset. And, oh, my God. And, oh, it's all. And then it's all like, I. I'm so angry, I'm so sad, I'm so lonely. And, uh, but there's something there that's actually making us feel alone or upset or dis, disquiet. So to just learn how to 
be with the energetic quality seems to be really important. So a lot of times when you're practicing meditation and these big waves of emotion come and you kind of, you get so, he, all of a sudden you have a thought and you're like hot <laughs> from anger or from desire or from whatever. And then, um, and so just to, rather than ride that wave of emotion, to actually like try to stay with just the core feeling of what it feels like to be uh, what what sort of find the root of what's going on and just be present with it mm-hmm. not analytical mm. just present thank you um, thank you um, are there any in terms of uh, taking the vow are there uh, things that one um, embraces and things that one um, kind of vows not to do anymore as yeah, part of it? Yeah, The biggest one is you vow not to kill. <laughs> really. So you vow, you, there are different, there are five, but we don't teach the precepts in a formal way except at deeper retreats programs, but generally when one becomes a Buddhist, one takes this, one's adopting a view of not causing harm. So you could say that's the biggest thing, and not causing harm could be in different ways. It could be through deception, or it could be through taking life, or it could be through abuse of power. Uh, 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 or through taking things that don't belong to you. Thank you. Yeah, so... You talked about um, meditation leading you to insight, and insight being sort of a self-knowledge or understanding of what, what drives you. Um, and once you understand that, how do you then, I mean, assuming that you've attained that sort of equanimity within yourself, but then you're still surrounded by people around you that don't have that level of awareness. Um, oh, I know. Doesn't that suck? Yeah, and it's just like, I know it's, and when you feel wronged or you, you perceive something as unjust, I mean, is it better to try to explain it and justify or to just let it go? Especially when it's like a, like a work thing. It's like, you know, God. Yeah. What, did, what was the last thing you said? <laughs> I mean, I'm just. A work thing. A work what? thing. Just. Okay. Is it better to so, walk away or there's to... There's no way I can give you the answer to a completely general question. Right. It's totally about your level of insight and skillful means. So skillful means is what comes out of insight. Skillful means is like the literal word of how compassion is expressed, right? If you just express your compassion in the wrong way then no one benefits from it. They don't receive the blessings of your great joy and warmth. <laughs> so skillful means is the, the real journey of... That's the journey of Mahayana. So first is the journey of like just developing self-knowledge, and then the second, which is called the Hinayana. In Tibetan Buddhism, this is how it's defined. And in the Shambhala teachings, it's really, you could say, tiger... The two first two stages of the path, tiger is really like coming down to earth, and lion is sort of 
uh, developing this, an outward view and a sense of joy and engagement with the world. So, so the whole Mahayana path, or the path of the Bodhisattva, is all about how do you communicate wisdom in the world? How do you, how do you actually... So we've ta- we talked about not causing harm, but then the next step is causing benefit. And so that's much harder. That's just much harder. Because then you're dealing with all of the needs and ideas of other people, which are never unified, right? Like, <laughs> except in Russia. So... <laughs> So, um, could you just repeat again, like, what are the prerequisites for taking refuge? Okay. Taking the vow and how it's going to happen, and yeah. how it's going to happen. So the prerequisite is you have to a feel that it's genuinely something that you feel is meaningful to do. It's becoming a Buddhist, so it's not like um, you know choosing a shirt. It's a little more significant than that, and theoretically, and uh, it's that you're actually setting something in motion in your life, and that you have some intention to stick to it. But there's no rules about that, and no one tracking it, other than yourself. Um, you should have some relationship to meditation practice. So I would say you should have been meditating for more for th- at least three months, somewhat. But that's different for everybody, and many people wait. For me, I was practicing. I was deeply involved in Shambhala for uh, over for three and a half for three years before I took refuge vow. But it really varies for different people. So. Um, uh, you know, before the weekend, you should you need to contact the office here and meet with a meditation instructor, and so that someone can so you they'll ask you personally what you think it is and why you want to do it, and they'll make and probably they'll say yeah it's fine, or maybe they'll say no, maybe you should really think about this if you're really doing this and that, you know. So it's just an individual meeting with a teacher, uh, you know, a meditation teacher, to just make sure that you are not... See, we consider vows, it's called a vow, and we consider vows, um, it's not that they're unbreakable, but that you don't want to take them mindlessly. You want to make sure you're actually... Because you could, you, could, you could make karmic commitments to all the wrong things, and we already have in many cases. So so we don't want to do that again if we can avoid it. And um, and then you just come to the program and then I will work together. I teach and we practice and you ask, there's a lot of room for, there's a lot of exploration. It's really, it's whatever, I'm a terrible teacher. Is, is, are there going to be other opportunities to do this? Because I do it every thing? spring here okay. in New York, and I do it in other places. And in Shambhala, it's uh, all, mo- all of the acharyas, of which Pema Chodron is one. And there's about 40 of us worldwide, and we all refuge and bodhisattva vows are part of what we do. 
and I do Refuge Vow every year here in New York, so it's an annual event. So thank you all really a lot for being here and for listening to these teachings and I will see you all again soon. <laughs>